Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Literally, as you go, make disciples. As you go where? As you go everywhere you go. As you go who? As you go everywhere you go, make disciples of all nations. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and yesterday we began a look at the national section, chapters 9 through 11. This is considered the national section because it deals specifically with the nation Israel. In these passages, many difficult topics are covered, and so we'll work our way through these chapters, spending the time needed to fully grasp the implication of these powerful verses, both historically as well as prophetically. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy emphasizes the importance the Jewish nation is to God and how important it should be to us. And so in chapter 9, he deals with the past, and 10 with the present, and in 11 with the future. And this is really important because this is going to ask and answer a lot of questions like what happens to the people of Israel now that they do not believe in Jesus? Now that they have rejected their Messiah, how will God relate to them? Will he toss them aside? Have they lost their status as the chosen people of God? And the way you answer these questions is going to determine how you view chapter 9. And this is why chapter 9 is a chapter of such intense debate. Because in some people's minds, beginning with Augustine, as furthered through the Roman Catholic Church, and even through some of the reformers like Luther and Calvin, they said God was done with Israel. That the church is the new Israel. That we have usurped the role of Israel and God has no future plans for the Jew. And so the way they interpret chapter 9 is far different than I believe the way Paul would have explained it. Now, that's the door cracked. And this is again important because some people are going to come to chapter 9 and they're going to teach that God created some people in this world to be destined to hell And he created and elected and made other people in this world to go to heaven. And the only reason you're going to heaven, if you said yes, they would say, is because God first said yes to you, and he purposed in his heart to say no to others. Now, Calvinism, and that's a big word, and we're going to explain it and look at it in depth. It comes and goes in the history of the church in terms of emphasis, For about a hundred years in America, it was at a very low rate, but now it's up again. And there's a lot of people who are very strong, outspoken Calvinists. And so this is a question I am often asked. So I want you to stay with me in chapter 9. We're not going to cover it in one week. We're just going to look at the introduction to the ninth chapter today in the first three verses. And I suspect we'll be here at least seven weeks working our way through it. So... That's where we've been, and that's where we're going. And so this morning, you can see the title of the message is A Passion for the Lost. And unlike so many Christians today, Paul had a passion for the lost. The Lord Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down, and the church went out, and they turned the world upside down. And you think about it, it's really amazing, because this was a people who had no buildings, No Bible colleges, no seminary degrees, no television, no radio, no printing press. 
but they had the message of the gospel and they were willing to go tell it to a lost world. And I believe one of the greatest, most passionate men who ever shared his faith was indeed the apostle Paul. So let's take a peek into his heart today and see if we can see what it is that made him tick. If you're using your note-taking outline, three simple points. First, I want you to see that the Apostle Paul had a sincere concern. He has a sincere concern. Look again at the opening two verses. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now, again, it's important to link these two verses to the overall context. Who is Paul talking about, and for whom did he have such sorrow and grief? And, of course, the answer is the Jews. And for what did he have this unceasing grief and great sorrow over? Well, we just read it in chapter 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. And so Paul deeply cares for his Jewish brethren. He describes them here in verse 3 as his kinsmen according to the flesh. But while he is related to them physically, while they are kinsmen according to the flesh, they are not his kinsmen according to the spirit, and that's what really matters. And so in verse 1 of chapter 9, Paul is saying, God the Holy Spirit bears witness with me that I have a deep concern and love for the Jewish people. And I find it rather interesting that he first tells of his special burden for the Jewish people before he ever goes into a great theological discourse about their election as a nation, about God's judgment on them as a nation, and on God's future restoration of them as a nation. I'm telling the truth in Christ, not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So Paul is giving them a picture of his heart. And it's often been said, and it is certainly illustrated not just here, but all the way through Scripture, that people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so Paul wants them to see how much he cares. Now, it's rather odd that he goes from joy unspeakable, as the King James renders the end of eight, to great sorrow and unceasing grief. But that is often the reality concerning people you love. One moment you can have unspeakable joy, and another day you can have unceasing grief. And so in chapter uh, 9 and verse 1, he deals with the reality of his grief. In verse 2, he deals with the intensity of his grief. And then as we will see in verse 3, he deals with the sacrifice of his grief. And so for those who think that Paul was opposed to Jewish people, now that he was a Christian, a Jewish Christian, now that he had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, remember, how did they view Paul? They viewed Paul as a Judas. They viewed him, the average Jew in his day, as one who had betrayed Judaism. He had been commissioned by the Sanhedrin. They were the supreme court of religion in that day. And the Sanhedrin had commissioned the Apostle Paul to go out and help to destroy Christianity. And this one who initially sought to destroy it and to disassemble it has a marvelous conversion on the Damascus Road, and now he is defending it, and he's protecting it, and he's promoting it. And some would think, well, in light of that fact, in light of the fact that Paul is now promoting it, and in light of the fact that the Jewish people are against him, that he doesn't really love them. If you want to have kind of a flavor for how Paul uh, was viewed by the Jewish people, just read Acts 13 through 28. Uh, I could compare them possibly today to a Muslim 
who's against the Christian. I'm not talking about a westernized Muslim, but I mean a Muslim who's a true Muslim who takes the Quran seriously that says to destroy those who believe in the Trinity. There's just a, a hatred. They view us as opponents to what they believe. Now, we're called to love even our enemies, and we need to win these people into the kingdom. But that's the kind of spirit that Paul felt from his own Jewish brethren. And so when they looked at him, they thought, he's preaching about our greatest prophet, Moses. He is preaching about our sacrificial system is antiquated. We need to silence this man. And they tried to. When Paul describes the persecution he received from them, he said in 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers for my countrymen. On one occasion, more than 40 zealous Jews packed and covenanted together that they would not eat anything until Paul was dead. But in spite of their opposition, on one day they tried to stone him and leave him as dead. He still loved them. Now, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he made a statement from the book of Deuteronomy that is repeated many times in the New Testament. And it's a very important principle for Christians to practice even today. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in practicing what he preaches, Paul calls in essence to the stand three witnesses to show that he really loves the Jewish people, that his sincere concern is real. Notice the first witness is the Lord Jesus here in verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. So he's calling the Lord Jesus to the stand. The omniscient, sovereign, gracious Christ who knew absolutely everything about the Apostle Paul, who understood his heart and all of his motives. He said, he can bear witness to the truthfulness that I love my Jewish brethren. The parallel today is when a man in a court of law puts his hand on the Bible and he says, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. We've seen every president since George Washington in effect do the same thing as they put their hand on the Bible. And it is an, a statement concerning the veracity and the integrity of what they are promising to do. So Paul says, listen, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I'm calling on my Lord and Savior as my witness. That's his first witness. Then he gives a second witness, namely his conscience. Read further into verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me. So Paul was saying, listen, my conscience affirms my outward testimony. Now, not everyone can use their conscience as a reliable witness because many people's Many people have a conscience that has been knocked out of whack. It's not a reliable test. But Paul is saying, listen, God knows me, and God knows my conscience, and he knows that this love I have is truly sincere. Now, I say it's not a reliable test for some because the Bible describes four different kinds of consciences in the New Testament. For instance, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 15, it describes what we call a defiled conscience. He said to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And that's why he can go on to say, they profess to know God, they profess to be born again, but by their deeds they deny them. And so a defiled conscience is no longer a reliable conscience. You cannot depend upon it. 
You hear people often say, well, my conscience is my God. Well, it's not a good God if it's been defiled. And some people, because of sins that they have committed and choices they have made, they have a defiled conscience. It's like a, it's like a thermometer that's out of calibration, a thermostat that's out of calibration. But in addition to a defiled conscience, the Bible describes what we would call a calloused conscience. In Ephesians 4, when Paul describes the hardcore gentle, Gentile pagans of his day, he says they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So some people have a conscience that has become calloused. I have some calluses here on the inside of my hand, and when I touch them even now, I can feel the callous. But it's certainly not as sensitive as this spot here in the middle of my hand. It's feeling, but it's not a sensitive kind of feeling. And that's what sin can do. The first time someone goes out and they commit sexual immorality, they feel extremely guilty. They go out and they do it again and again and again, and after a while, they're not so guilty. They've become callous. I was counseling with someone this week, and he told me about his time in Afghanistan and how some of the Marines there have their computers open and they're watching pornography. And they said, well, come on and watch with us. He said, no, I'm not doing that. They said, well, you must be gay. He said, I'm not gay. I'm not going to watch it. But you see, some of those men could do that because they have a callous conscience. They have become insensitive to it. And so what do they do? They become those who recruit others to join them in their sin. We saw in Romans chapter 1 that great litany of sin that Paul described. And after he lists it, that we studied it in great detail, he said they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And so they become evangelists for sin. Why? Because it makes their callous conscience feel just a little bit better over what they're doing. The American Indians used to describe it like an arrowhead. They said, you have an arrowhead in your heart. And when it spins, the points prick you and they hurt you. But if it spins and it spins and it spins and it spins and it spins, eventually the points are worn off and it no longer bothers you. That's the principle that Paul is describing when he describes a callous conscience. In addition to a defiled conscience and a callous conscience, the Bible also speaks of a seared conscience. He, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, gives the church a warning of what will happen in the last days, the last of the last days. We have been in the last days, the Bible teaches, since the day of Pentecost. I believe now we are in the last of the last days, and in describing those days, Paul uses the term latter times, as the Old Testament prophets do. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. If you take a hot branding iron and you sear a calf with it, you will kill all the nerve endings on that part of his body where the brand is. And after it's healed over, you can take a pin and you can poke that scar, that brand, and he will not feel a thing. Why? Because all the nerve endings have been burned out. 
And this is the worst kind of conscience to develop. It's what the writer of the Hebrews calls an evil conscience, where people sometimes actually feel conviction when they do what is right and when they, rather than when they do what is wrong. Isaiah warned of this. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There are some people who are so warped in their consciences that they cannot tell the difference between right and wrong. And most of those people you really want in prison. It's kind of scary when you think about it, that this is the kind of conscience especially that men will display more and more as we move into the last of the last days. But there's a fourth kind of conscience that is described in the New Testament. It's a regenerated conscience, and it's what we might call a good conscience. Paul, in describing his life from his conversion, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. When he writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, he said, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So here in Romans 9, Paul is calling on the second witness. First, he calls on the Lord Jesus. Then he calls on his conscience, which is a good conscience. And then to add strength, he calls a third witness, God the Holy Spirit. Again here in verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me. How? In the Holy Spirit. Christ witnesses that I am telling the truth. My conscience witnesses that I am telling the truth. And my conscience bears witness with a third witness and that my conscience is under the influence of God the Holy Spirit and he knows that I am telling the truth. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a sincere, genuine compassion and passion for those who are lost? Now, if I were to bring up on this platform, those who are listening to my voice today, those who name the name of Christ, those who say they are born again, probably my guess is most of them would say yes. But I am afraid that many of those who would say yes, in the back of their conscience, as it is influenced by God the Holy Spirit, there would be a twinge of conviction. That's not Paul's case. And so we can say outwardly yes, But our conscience would say, then why don't you witness more? Why don't you speak up more often for Jesus Christ? When was the last time you made a sincere effort to bring someone into the kingdom of God? Why don't you try to invite people to church and to other evangelistic outreaches that we have? Why don't you memorize this scripture that will make you more effective as a witness? Why are you so afraid of what people will think? Why are you so scared of failure? Why don't you pray more and agonize more over those people you know are lost? Why, 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 why? And your conscience might say something different from what you say with your lips. And so if our consciences were called up on this platform, what would our consciences say? Well, Paul can say, I'm telling the truth in Christ. Now, some of us love church work, but we really don't have a passion for the lost. And there's a decision we need to make. Much like Elijah, who called the people in his day to a point of decision where he will ask, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? You say, Pastor, but I can't make myself love people. I can't work up this feeling to have a passion for the lost. 
You're right. You will never work it up in yourself because this kind of compassion comes from God. And so the starting place for some of us is to admit to God that we don't want to have it. Tell him, tell him that you want him to do a new work, a brand new work in your life, giving you a fresh passion for those that know Christ. In John chapter 21, if you remember, when the Lord Jesus had that conversation with Peter, and I did a number of sermons and messages, and I didn't just randomly pick them out of the air. I picked messages that would lay the foundation for what we're going to study in 9 through 11. And if you remember, one came from John 21, and Jesus did not ask Peter, Peter, do you love feeding sheep? He asked Peter, do you love me? Because if you are in love with Christ, you are in love with the things that Christ loves. And when he gave a simple purpose statement of why he left heaven and came to earth, he said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And not only did he state that purpose of himself, he commissioned us in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. Now remember, in a local church is the composite of all of its individual members. And so don't ask about the person next to you, just ask about yourself as I've asked myself this week. If everyone in this church were just like me, what would this church be like? And then apply that into the realm of evangelism. If everyone had the kind of passion as seen in what I do, if everyone had the same kind of passion that I have, then how successful would we be as a church? Listen, there is no reason why everyone in this room who names the name of Christ could not believe God for at least one single person to come into the kingdom of God in the next year. I believe that can happen. You will never convince me that if the members of this church were as concerned as much as Paul was about the lost, that we wouldn't see God do even more in this place. But you see, what has happened in America today, what was basic Christianity in the first century, has become an anomaly in our day. And we wonder why America is going down the spiritual tubes. And we're looking for some political solution, some political savior, when the answer is in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's Paul. He has a sincere concern. Secondly, I want you to notice that the apostle Paul had a steadfast determination. Again, we read here in verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And so in verse 1, he described the reality of, uh, of his sincerity. And in verse 2, he describes the intensity of his sincerity. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. You could translate the Greek, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Now, I realize that whenever I preach a sermon like this, that for many of you, no sooner will you leave this place and out of the sound of my voice and the voice of Holy Scripture that we are examining, that while for a few minutes in here, God may speak to you, within a matter of hours, you will forget virtually everything that you heard. You will be in your Facebook, you'll be in your social medias, you'll be talking to people on the phone, you'll be doing a host of things, but you will forget what I have said, and this sermon will make absolutely no difference in your life. I'll be a little bit guilty while I'm here, but then it will be quickly dismissed. 
But when Paul describes his sorrow, he describes it as an unceasing grief. The King James says a continual grief. Another translation says an unending grief. Another says a constant grief. Still another, an uninterrupted grief. That's what the word means. It is steadfast. It is determinative. It will not stop right out next to verse 2. Would you Acts 20, 31? Acts 20, 31. Let me read it to you. Paul had gathered the Ephesian elders on a beach, and it's the last time he's ever going to see them. And he says, therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Earlier in that discourse, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. So Paul reminds the Ephesian leadership that he didn't share his faith for just three weeks, but for three years. And then as we studied last week, and again, I chose that text for a reason, Paul, when he comes to the end of his life, is able to affirm he did this his whole life. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. So here in Acts 20 in verse 31, he says, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Sometimes when Paul preached, he preached with tears. Where are the tears? Where are the broken hearts of our day? A true concern for the loss. Now, some of us don't cry easy. I don't cry easy. But I have found myself crying over people whom I love, over whom I am broken for concerning their salvation. And I know we're all wired differently emotionally, and I respect that. But whether you are a tearful person or not, I know that God cannot bless in this place the way he wants until we are a broken people, until we have the kind of concern and the kind of compassion and the kind of steadfast determination that this apostle had. And as I'm speaking, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, that's why we pay you. We pay you to win the loss for us. We just come here to listen to you preach. And when I'm speaking, some of you are reasoning, don't make me feel guilty, pastor. This is not my thing. This is not my calling. This is not my gift. And maybe you had some pastor in the past who taught you that, and he hid behind that excuse because he didn't want to share his faith. Listen, it may not be your gift, but it is the common responsibility of every child of God. Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Literally, as you go, make disciples. As you go where? As you go everywhere you go. As you go who? As you go everywhere you go, make disciples of all nations. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen, if that's what Christ is about, that is what we are to be about. In his second letter to Timothy, he said this in the fourth chapter. We read it last week. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul knew that Timothy's primary area of giftedness was not in evangelism, but as a pastor teacher. And so here at the end of his life, in his last will and testament, he challenges him to do the work of an evangelist. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. 
and the gospel is the good news of the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved, and so it's critical to both Jew and Gentile that his name be proclaimed. To listen again to today's study from Romans chapter 9 entitled, A Passion for the Lost, use the Search the Scriptures app, available in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at A Passion for the Lost. Join us then as we search the scriptures.